would go ahead and open your copy of God's Word to John chapter 5. John chapter 5, we're going to get back into the Gospel of John this morning, and whereas last Sunday was in some ways intensely practical, there's a sense in which today is going to become intensely theological. And so may God help us as we dive into this portion of Scripture. We're going to be in John chapter 5, verses 24 through 29. Let's go ahead and read the passage, beginning in verse 24. These are the words of our Lord. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. And he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth. Those who did good deeds to a resurrection of life and those who committed evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. The question could be posed, why Christianity? Why Jesus Christ? Why not Moses or Muhammad or Gandhi? Why is salvation exclusively in the Lord Jesus Christ? And the answer lies in his identity as the eternal Son of God. John 1, one in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Not only is the Son without beginning in that there was never a time when He wasn't, He is co-equally God with the Father. And since it's impossible for man to work his way up to God, Jesus brought salvation down. By becoming a man and adding to himself the human nature and then accomplishing all that is necessary in salvation such that he can say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Reconciliation with God takes place on his terms, not ours. Now, it's been a while since we've been in the Gospel of John, and we're picking up right in the middle of an extended discourse, one that began in verse 19 and goes all the way to the end of the chapter. And so we're going to need to reorient ourselves to everything that has been happening. You'll recall that Jesus has returned to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish feasts. And upon his return, he went to a pool called Bethesda, where there were a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered. And among the multitude, he took special interest, special notice of a certain man, a man who had been ill for 38 years and was either lame or even paralyzed. And Jesus, taking special notice of that man, healed him. Having compassion on him, such that the man immediately picked up his pallet and walked. Just an 
amazing display of miraculous power. And that really should have been an occasion to glorify God. That was an opportunity for those who witnessed it and even heard about it to marvel at what has taken place. Except that there was this one problem. Jesus healed the man on the Sabbath. And the religious establishment had determined that it was unlawful to carry one's pallet on that day since doing so, in their mind, meant work. It constituted work. And since Jesus was the one who healed him and told him to pick up his pallet and walk, a confrontation ensued between he and the Pharisees. In fact, verse 16 indicates the Jews were persecuting Jesus for these things. And the Jews there is no doubt a reference to the Pharisees who were the ringleaders in this persecution. And instead of seeking to defuse the situation as you might think Jesus would, he rather intensified it because in verse 17 he answered them, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. I mean, in effect, Jesus asks the Pharisees, Does God need the Sabbath? To which the Pharisees would reply, No. To which Jesus would say, Well, I'm God the Son, and co equally God with the Father. Neither do I. Verse 18, For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. They heard him loud and clear. And they believed his claims were utterly blasphemous and deserving of death. And this launches Jesus into an extended discourse that again begins in verse 19 and goes all the way to the end of the chapter. And the initial theme of this discourse is that the Son is one with the Father. In fact, Jesus sums up the the thrust of the theology captured here in this discourse in John 10.31, or rather 10.30, where he declares, I and the Father are one. And even at that time, the Jews picked up stones to stone him because, again, they heard him loud and clear and believed the claim was utterly blasphemous. And so in verses 19 to 23, which we saw the last time we were in the Gospel of John, Jesus asserts his equality with God. And if you recall, there was a matter that I brought up at that time that sought to address what was taking place here. And I want to get into that today to see if I can't help to bring further clarity to that. And so here's where we're going to get a little bit theological. For example, look at verse 19. There, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. And so the Son does nothing on his own initiative. Instead, he only does that which the Father does. And many commentators account for this by seeing subordination between the Father and the Son, where the Son is in perfect submission to the Father. But if you recall, I said this isn't grounded in subordination, it's grounded in perfect unity. 
where the Father and the Son are totally united in will, willing the same way. And I want to address this issue more fully. Now, someone could say, but James, you know, what difference does this make? And I would say, well, for one, we want to worship God as he is. We don't want to worship a false image of who God is. And so, therefore, this comes to bear upon a matter as serious and significant as worship. And for two, I think you'll find that subordination, the understanding that the Son is subordinate to the Father, results in a lesser glory of the Son, where the Son doesn't receive the the glory that he is due. And if the Son doesn't receive his rightful glory, then the Father doesn't either, since the Son ultimately is glorified to the glory of the Father. The Son's glory resounds to the Father's glory. And so I would say there's actually quite a bit at stake in this discussion. I'm going to try and make this as accessible as I possibly can. So see if you can't track with me on this. In recent decades, there's a theological position that has emerged known as eternal functional subordination of the Son. Functional subordination of the Son, or EFS, I'll refer to at various points. And what it teaches is that what makes the Son the Son, the characteristic that makes the Son the Son, is that He is eternally and functionally subordinate to the Father. That even before time began, the Son submitted Himself to the Father's will, such that sonship and submission are inseparable realities, and such that it is the Son's functional subordination to the Father that makes the Son a distinct person from Him. So the whole idea here is that subordination is required for the Son to be the Son. Without that, the Son cannot be the Son. You see, it's appropriate to ask this. What makes the Father the Father? What makes the Son the Son? Why is the Son the Son and not the Father? And EFS proponents argue that what makes the Son the Son is that He's eternally and functionally subordinate to the Father. And this is related to another theological debate because many of the proponents of this position come from the council of biblical manhood and womanhood. You see, the Bible does teach that men and women are equal, and yet though equal, that wives, for example, are to submit to their husbands. This is called complementarianism. That is true, and that is biblical, and we teach that it rightly acknowledges That distinction in role and function doesn't undermine equality. But the charge from those who oppose complementarianism is that submission can only exist in inequality. And therefore, they argue, since men and women are equal in worth and value, and of course they are, the Bible can't require wives to submit to their husbands. And that position is called egalitarianism. And it employs various means to nullify what Scripture says about the roles of men and women, even allowing for women pastors, for example. So the question might be this, how does 
the eternal functional subordination of the Son relate to all of this? Well, if it can be shown that submission is built into the roles and functions of the Trinity, then it becomes a compelling argument in favor of complementarianism. That equality and submission actually coexist wonderfully together, even in the relationship between the Father and the Son. Where the Son is said to be eternally and functionally subordinate to the Father, while simultaneously possessing total equality. You see, if you can show that the authority structures of society and the church proceed from an authority structure that originates in the Godhead, then you can make a a compelling case for complementarianism. Now, the thing you have to understand is, you don't need that case to prove what the Bible teaches about the rightful roles of men and women. It's unnecessary to tether the, the two together. Yes, I guess if you could appeal to the Trinity for an authority structure that validates what we see in the, the roles of men and women in society and the church, that would be helpful, but it's not helpful when the connection is actually untrue. And so the question is, is the EFS position biblical? Or even more or different, is it historical? And I want to make this somewhat interactive, although I don't want you to answer out loud. I just want you to kind of answer in your mind. I'm going to try and see if I can't bring you along in this a little bit to help you understand the issues that are at play. How many wills do you have? I hope you said one. Because if you said two, then Houston, we have a problem, and you would likely be diagnosed with some sort of personality disorder. You have one will. Now, why is it that you have one will? You might say, well, because I'm one person. Since I'm one person, I have one will. But that's not quite right. Let me illustrate. How many persons is Jesus Christ? One person. How many wills does he have? Now, this is going to stretch your historical theology and its exegetical biblical theology, but the answer is two. There's two wills. You say, why? Because as true God, he has a divine will, and as true man, he has a human will. So the one person, Jesus Christ, has two wills. And he has two wills because will, note this, is a property of nature, not of personhood. And so because Jesus has two natures, one divine, which he's had for all of eternity as the eternal Son of God, and one human, he therefore has two wills. Will is a property of nature, which is to say that it is an essential attribute of nature. And because Jesus is the God-man, he has two natures, and therefore two wills. Let's take that to the Trinity. You have one God who eternally exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What makes the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit co-equally God? What is it that, that makes them co-equally God? Why is it that the Father and the Son and the Spirit, those three distinct persons, 
are one God. And the answer lies in each one possesses the one divine nature or essence. And so the Father has the one divine essence. The Son has the one divine essence. The Spirit has the one divine essence. That's why you can have one God or one being who exists in three persons. And that means that each person in the Godhead possesses all of the essential attributes of deity, like omniscience. That God is all-knowing, the Father is all-knowing, the Son is all-knowing, the Spirit is all-knowing, or omnipresence. The Father is everywhere present at the same time. The, the Son, the Spirit, the same is true. Or omnipotence, that God is all-powerful, the Father is all-powerful, the, the Son is all-powerful, the, the Spirit is all-powerful. And one of the essential attributes of the divine nature is the one divine will. I could ask, how many wills does God have? And in posing that question, I'm not asking about God's revealed will versus his decretive will, or his decretive will versus his, I guess, permissive will, or something like that. We're not talking about that. That's a completely different conversation. We're just asking whether God has one will, or whether he has multiple wills, and of course, he has one will, since will is a property of nature. And there is only one divine nature. So then, the question is, though there are three persons in the Trinity, how many wills are there? And the answer is one. Father, the Son, and the Spirit each possess the one divine will, and that means each person wills the same way. So here's the problem, and language matters. If the Son is eternally and functionally subordinate to the Father, such that with regard to the divine nature, he has always practiced perfect submission to him, then it follows that the Son has a distinct will from the Father. Why? Because by definition, subordination is submitting to the will of another. And so if the Son has a distinct will from the Father, then what do you have? You have a distinct nature, where the Son has a nature distinct from the Father. And if He has a distinct nature from the Father, what do you have? You no longer have one God who exists in three persons. You now have two gods. And if the Spirit submits to the Father and the Son, then you have three gods. Now, I've written on this, so if you want to go into this in more detail, I can provide you with that. But, it's, but for now, suffice it to say, the EFS position is out of step with both Scripture and historical theology because it inadvertently results in a, a distorted view of the Trinity, where you end up with not one God who exists in three persons, but rather three gods who exist in three persons. John 5, verse 30, at the end of the verse there, where it begins, because. 
and Jesus says, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me, what do we do with that? Well, for one, we have to understand this statement in light of the human will. With regard to the human will, there is definitely submission. The Son incarnate, two natures, both divine and human, and two wills, there is definitely submission of the human will to the divine. And for two, we have to keep in mind that with regard to his divine nature, Jesus wills in total unity with the Father. The Father and the Son are never at odds with each other in terms of what they will. They never will differently. They always will the same way. And so with the human will, Jesus practices perfect submission, but with the divine will, there is total unity. Now hopefully, some of you at least are with me on that. We're going to bring it back to John now, and the issue at hand is, of course, equality with God. Jesus is claiming to be equal with the Father, and his equality with the Father isn't found in the human nature, it's found in the divine nature. And therefore, in this discourse, with that as the, the, the backdrop of all that our Lord is saying here, the, the primary focus is on the Lord's divine essence in verses 19 to 23. So let's summarize what we saw in those verses. First, we saw that the Son is one with the Father in action. The Son is one with the Father in action, such that everything the Father does, the Son does in like manner, which is quite a statement, really. There's nothing the Father does that the Son doesn't. Second, we saw that the Son is one with the Father in disclosure. Verse 20, for the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing. This means the Son has comprehensive knowledge of all of the Father's actions. A knowledge that necessitates the Son be one with him. Third, we saw that the Son is one with the Father in life-giving power. Verse 21, for just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. That in the same way that it can be said that the Father is the source of all life, the same can be said of the Son. John 1:4. in him was life. Fourth, we saw that the Son is one with the Father in judgment. Verse 22, for not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son, which is to say that the Son is so completely one with the Father that the Father's judgment is rendered through the Son. The Father is present in and through the judgment of the Son. And fifth, we saw that the Son is one with the Father in honor. Verse 23, so that all will honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Jesus is as worthy of honor, glory, and praise as the Father is, and it is the Father's will that the Son receive that honor and glory, and therefore it is the Son's will that he receive that honor and glory as well. Jesus, God the Son, even incarnate, is equal with the Father in worship, being worthy of all honor, all glory, 
Now, what you have to keep in mind as you embrace the drama of this discourse, Jesus is speaking to who? He's speaking to the Pharisees, and these are incredibly bold claims. I mean, Jesus is claiming that he is just as worthy of of worship as the Father is. And so, Jesus isn't dialing things down. He's actually dialing things up. The, The temperature and intensity are increasing. And now, Jesus will bring everything to a head. He's going to bring everything to a head because he's going to demonstrate that that everything ultimately hinges on him. Everything comes down to what you do with Jesus Christ. Eternal life is found in him. It's through his sovereign initiative that a person is brought into that life. And in the judgment, it will be him who acts as judge. So the Pharisees that he's speaking with, he will ultimately judge. And if they reject him, he will judge them for their deeds. And the significance of that will come out in verse 29. These are claims that can only be true if the Son is one with the Father. And so to work through this text, we're going to answer three questions. And the first question we're going to answer is this. How does one escape the judgment? How does one escape the judgment? We're going to see this in verse 24. There, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, He who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. To have eternal life, one must hear the word of Christ, and believe the Father who sent him. Which means it's not merely enough to hear the word of Christ. You must believe the word of Christ, and by believing that word, you're actually believing the Father who sent him. And this highlights again that the Father and the Son are one. In this case, the Son is one with the Father in word or message, when Jesus says, my word, that word is one with the word of the Father. Which is why, on the one hand, Jesus can refer to the word that he speaks as his word, and on the other, receiving that word is believing the Father who sent him, because the Father and the Son are perfectly united in their message. And really, this reaches back to verse 23 where a failure to honor the Son is a failure to honor the Father. You see, if the Father and the Son are completely one in their word, then rejecting the Son is rejecting the Father. When the Pharisees hear the word of Jesus and they reject him as a blasphemer, ultimately they are rejecting the Father because the word that Jesus is proclaiming to them is the word of the Father. And this came out in Luke 10.16, which you may remember where the Lord is even speaking to those who he commissioned to preach the gospel and said to them, the one who listens to you listens to me, that is Jesus, and the one who rejects you rejects me. And then he said, and he who rejects me rejects the one who sent me. 
the Father and the Son are completely one in message and word, and that's what makes preaching the Word of God such an amazing reality, because when you truly do preach the Word of God, you are one with the Father and the Son in the word that you bring. And so eternal life is reserved for those who hear and believe, and that means eternal life is a present reality for the believer. Eternal life is not something to merely be looking forward to. It is a a reality that can break in on your life now. And if you're in Christ, then it has. It's where the very life that exists in God, inseparable from His very nature, breaks in on the soul of one who was previously spiritually lifeless. Describes it as passing out of death into life. Look at the end of verse 24. But it's passed out of death into life. The word pass there is a word that indicates a change in state or condition, and it's in the perfect tense. So it indicates a reality that came to pass at a particular moment in time and has eternally enduring implications. When a person passes from death to life, and eternal life has broken in on their soul, there is no way to reverse that state or condition. They are now eternally in a state of life and life eternal. And it's those that belong to this day who have heard and believe and have eternal life that do not come into judgment. Look at verse 24 again. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment. And so for those who hear the word of Christ, there are basically two kinds of people. You have those who hear, believe, and have eternal life on the one hand. These are those who have passed out of death into life and do not come into judgment. And then there are those who hear, reject, and remain in a state of spiritual death. And should they die in that state, their judgment is sure. Everything hinges on what you do with Jesus. Reject Him and face certain judgment. Embrace Him and have eternal life. This is how one escapes the judgment. Now, someone might I know that Jesus speaks on behalf of God. How can I be certain that he is delivering the Father's word? How do I know that his claims are true? And there are certainly witnesses that testify to the truthfulness of his claims. There's the prophetic testimony of John the Baptist. There's the testimony of the miracles Jesus performed, like the one we just referred to where he healed the man at the pool. There's the testimony of the Father, and there's the prophetic testimony of the Old Testament. And Jesus will actually go on to highlight each of these testimonies in verses 31 to 47. But even with the full weight of that, even with the full weight of that testimony, a person can still reject him. Something more is required. And so we come to our second question. one believe, and this is going to come out for us in verse 25. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, 
and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Passing from death to life requires nothing less than a divine summons from the voice of the Son of God. A summons that carries with it everything necessary to impart spiritual life to a lifeless soul. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, and now is, which is to say, the hour has come. And then he says, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and this is the effectual call, ordained by the Father, effected through the Son, and administered by the Spirit. And it's a limited call because Jesus says, and those who hear will live. Which is to say, only those who hear this call, only those who hear the voice of the Son of God, will come to life. Or said differently, everyone who hears the voice of the Son of God in this way is unfailingly ushered into eternal life. You see, there's the word that Jesus proclaims, and that word must be believed. And when it is, a person has believed the Father who sent him. But to actually believe that word, hearing the word is not enough. One must hear the voice of the Son of God calling them to life. A call which brings them to life. Now, Jesus refers to this in John 10. So turn to John 10 for a moment. Jesus refers to this, this voice, this call that he, he delivers, he administers to his people. In John 10, 14, Jesus declares, I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me. Even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay my life down for the sheep. Then he says this, I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. The Son is referring to a voice that calls through the, the, the preaching and proclamation of the word that, that, that makes the word efficacious in the life of his people, such that it goes into their heart, energized by the Spirit, and brings life. And of course, the illustration of this that just will never get old is the raising of who? The raising of Lazarus in John 11, for example. He was in the tomb for four days, and yet Jesus cried out to a dead man who had been dead for four days, Lazarus, come forth! Now, could Lazarus have said no? Could Lazarus have declined the offer? No, but when Jesus proclaimed, Lazarus, come forth, the very command itself imparted to Lazarus life. And he came to life instantly, and all of the effects of decay were instantly reversed. That is a picture of the divine summons, not to physical life, but rather to spiritual life. And it is irresistible, transferring one out of death into life. And 
And Jesus is claiming to the Pharisees that he has power. That his voice is powerful to bring a person from death to life. And then he gives the reason in verse 26. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also that has life in himself. The reason that Jesus can raise the dead, both spiritually and physically, is because he has life in himself. But in light of the conversation he's had, you might be wondering, but how are we to understand this? Because here it would indicate that the Father gave this to the Son. Does that mean there was a time when the Son did not have this life within him? Was there a a moment in eternity past where the Son received this life? Well, to answer this, we've got to go back to John 1-1 again. We're weaving through this a little bit. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, which means there was never a time when the Son wasn't. He is eternally God the Son with the Father. Second, as God the Son, having had no beginning, He has never become anything. He has never received anything. Yes, He became man in the Incarnation, but this is with respect to His nature, His divine nature. He has never become anything. He he never received anything, having life in himself and being entirely self-existent. That is an essential attribute of deity. If he did not have life in himself eternally, he could not be God. Because to have that life, to possess that life, is to be God by definition. John 1.4, in him was life. Or recall, 1 John 1.2, that he is eternal life. The Son is eternal life because the Father is eternal life and the Spirit is eternal life. And so then how are we to understand that the Father gave to the Son also to have life in Himself? Well, it's difficult because we are finite creatures and we have to think eternally, which is basically an impossibility. If you've ever had any kind of thinking that tried to actually think back into eternity past, you can't. Your your mind goes into that Windows blue screen at some point because it's impossible to process that. And so we have to understand it like this. That this giving by the Father to the Son is an act belonging to eternity. It is an eternal act of giving. There was never a time when the Son did not possess this life. And the way to understand that is to understand the relationship between the Father and the Son. There's a relationship that exists between the Father and the Son, and in that relationship is this eternal act of giving to the Son that He would have life in Himself. And yes, He always had life in Himself, because if there was ever a point when He didn't have life in Himself, He would not be God. enough to merely hear the word of Christ. It must be believed, and to believe him is to believe the Father who sent him, but how does one believe? How does a lifeless soul respond? The fact is it can't, not without the divine summons, and so not only must one 
hear the word of Christ, they must also hear the voice of the Son of God, the effectual call, whereby the dead soul passes from death to life. Because in the effectual call, where a person is brought from death to life, the Spirit administers the gift of faith, and that living soul believes on the Son. person escapes judgment by receiving Christ. And receiving Christ requires a particular and efficacious divine summons. But should a person reject Christ all the way to the grave, what does the judgment entail? That's our third question. What does the judgment entail? between the possession and prerogative to give life and the right to judge. Only here, there's a note of emphasis on the incarnation. Look at verse 27. And he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. And so here, Jesus links his authority to judge to his identity as the Son of Man, which is a clear proclamation and claim that he is the son of man of Daniel 7. Listen to Daniel 7, 13 and 14. Daniel is seeing a vision, and he says, I, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man coming. And he came up to the ancient of days, the father, and was presented before him. And to him, referring to the son of man, was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. And so Jesus is proclaiming to the Pharisees, who would have known Daniel 7 very well, that he is the Son of Man, that he is the one that Daniel sees in the vision who receives honor and glory from the ancients of days. And it must have struck a chord with them. Because in verse 28, Jesus says, Do not marvel at this. Jesus is the same thing to Nicodemus. Do not be amazed. But I said to you, you must be born again. In fact, just a few verses earlier, in verse 20, he says, For the Father loves the Son, and shows him all things that he himself is doing. And note this, the Father will show him greater works than these, so that you will marvel. Say, what? You say, what are the greater works? Raising the dead. Verse 28. The rest of verse 28. For an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth. Those who did good deeds to a resurrection of life those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. In a similar way that Jesus rose Lazarus physically from the dead, so too he will raise every person who has ever been born. The difference being 
that this future resurrection that Jesus is describing for us here in John 5 will be one that determines where a person spends their eternity. Choice, it will either be a resurrection of life, life eternal, or a resurrection of judgment. Now, it might puzzle you that Jesus makes the deeds of the individual the determining factor. Isn't salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone? How can it be on the ground of deeds that, that one either has a resurrection of life or a resurrection of judgment? Well, it's because a person's deeds give evidence as to whether or not they've passed from death to life. When eternal life comes into a person, there's an internal transformation that takes place on the inside, and the evidence and fruit of that transformation begins over time to manifest itself outwardly into deeds of righteousness that don't secure salvation but give evidence that that person knows God. Jesus for good works, works which he prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them and we would be found. Okay, so what does this resurrection of judgment entail? Well, it's described in Revelation 20, and we looked at it last time. There will be a great white throne, and on that throne will be the Lord Jesus Christ. And at that time, he will raise every person who has ever been born who died in their sin and he will raise them to stand before him at his judgment throne both small and great no exception and there will be a book that is present and in that book will be a perfect record of every deed of every person at that judgment everyone who died in their sin outside of Christ rejecting him to the grave and the judgment they will receive will be a just judgment where they will receive a judgment that is in accord with every lawless deed and act, every unlawful word, unlawful thought, unlawful action. And then the Son, Jesus Christ, will throw the entire lot of those who are judged on that day into the lake of fire where there will be eternal suffering under the righteous indignation of God. A suffering that Jesus describes elsewhere as being suffering of weeping and gnashing of teeth. For an eternity of eternities, never-ending judgment for their sin. Maybe the most uncomfortable doctrine in the Bible. therefore reject the Father who sent him, and who don't hear the voice of the Son of God calling them to life, they will suffer judgment for all the eternity of their sin. I mean, think of the trauma of the moment as Jesus speaks to the Pharisees and making these claims. He will be the very one who raises them from the dead and judges them if they continue to reject him. But then shifting the Pharisees to us, what about you? 
have you received Christ? Have you believed the word that Jesus preaches? Have you believed the Father who sent him? Have you been quickened by the voice of the Son of God? Have you passed out of death into life such that there is no judgment for you to enter into? If not, then this is another opportunity offered to you by the good and gracious hand of God. Because Jesus isn't just the Son who became man and proclaimed all of these realities about who he is and what he will do in the resurrection. He also accomplished salvation and redemption by ultimately fulfilling every aspect of righteousness that we couldn't. And then going to the cross and dying the death that we deserve, whereby the Father crushed the Son pouring out his righteous indignation on him where the son was bearing the sins of his people in his own body such that he would be the sin offering, the sin bearer, atoning for sin, whereby he would die, go into the grave, and rise on the third day. And now he is being proclaimed throughout all the earth as the Savior and Lord of the the universe. And if you would come unto him by faith, if you would hear the voice of the Son of God and be quickened to life, believe on him. And having abandoned all trust in your own righteousness and having abandoned every bit of self-reliance and trusting wholly and entirely in Christ, God would declare you righteous. Even imputing to you, crediting to you the righteousness of Christ so that you would stand holy and blameless before him on that day when there is the resurrection of Christ. Reject the Son and be judged for every deed of unrighteousness. Come unto the Son, trust in him, and you will be saved. So back to our original question, why Jesus? Why not Moses question should be congruent. How can you even compare Moses to the, to the Pharisees who trusted in Jesus we'll bring that out in a moment to the Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal Son, who's one with the Father in all things. Jesus is Lord of all, God eternal, and he is our Savior and Son. between our Lord and the Pharisees. And yet, Father, it's not merely a confrontation that needs to be addressed in that context. It's a confrontation that each one of us needs to address before you. We are outside of Christ, and we are at enmity with you, alienated from your life. And so, Father, I pray that every heart here would hear the voice of the Son of God and be quickened to life and believe on Him and be saved. So that on that day, when the resurrection unto life takes place, 
we would all be together and rejoice with one another, knowing that we have not only passed a death into life, but that because of that, we do not and will not come into judgment. Father God, do that work this day. Thank you for the work of your name of your son.